God bless you today. It's always a joy to have you here. And, you know, Your thousand dollars cannot reproduce until it enters so into a covenant with the soul. Baptist Church will picket their funeral. You can put that thousand dollars. We will remind the living that you can still repent and obey. Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, and the factory, we, uh, this is Heart of the Matter, where biblical Christianity, that's where all you true believers out there, you follow biblical Christianity, meet evangelical, American evangelicalism face-to-face. -face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry, and may he be with you and us tonight. If you're in the Salt Lake City area, and you're seeking to check out a unique approach to a church family, why don't you go to www.campus.com, hyphens in between each, between each of those letters, and uh, we think the approach to doing church has value. If you're interested, there's a website. You can get more address, information like times, location, etc. We are right off 45th South in Salt Lake City. Having said this, we recognize that there are a number of other churches in the state of Utah and nation that are also very worth checking out. So this is no way of us saying we do uh, everything right. Far from it. We just encourage people to seek out churches where they are going to learn the word of God and they will also uh, fellowship and be discipled. That is the aim. So more on this in a minute. Listen up on Sunday... Ooh, what month? June 23rd, 2013, from 6 to 8 p.m., we're going to be having a statewide open house here. That means we should have probably about seven people in attendance. Uh, but we're inviting everybody and anybody who is a Christian to come and see our new studios here. Uh, we want you to come. The reason is because we're hoping to help produce anybody who wants to put out quality Christian programming uh, through these studios. And so we're having this open house. Grab your pastor, grab the person who's in charge of tech at your church if you want, or a friend, even yourself, and come and see us here. That's Sunday night, June 23rd, 6 to 8 p.m., open house here at the factory. It seems the Roman Catholic Pope gave a speech, which HuffPo, the Huffington Post, uh, gave the headline, quote, well, uh, Pope Francis says atheists who do good are redeemed, not just Catholics, end quote. Pope Francis says atheists who are good are redeemed, not just Catholics. The headline and the article that came with it is really misleading. Uh, the headline is off. They didn't really understand uh, what the Pope had said. Uh, it brings some really insightful um things to the idea of soteriology, and which is a big word for how people are saved. So, uh, and it also shows in some ways how off the Pope of the Catholic Church is. So while the Huffington Post was, was wrong in what they headlined, the article uh, itself showed some amazing things. So let, I just want to offer up some opinions. I'm going to uh, read uh, some of the statements from the article and then give you uh, what I think it says could be wrong. Uh, but we will see. Um, first, uh, he said, quote, the Lord created us in his image and likeness. Uh, of course, that's true. We believe that completely. But then he said, and we are the image of the Lord. It's an odd way to say it. We are the image of the Lord. I'm not sure that is uh, really biblically correct. It doesn't really ring true to me, but I hadn't thought of it. I just wrote this up. So give that one a thought. Uh, then the Pope goes on and he says, and he, meaning God, does good, and all of us have this commandment at heart. Do good and do not do evil. All of us. Now, are all people given the command to do good? Certainly. 
We are to, the highest good is to love God and to love neighbor as self. If we comply, we are doing the highest good. Uh, but when he says that all of us have this commandment at heart, I'm not sure I understand what he means. If scripture does admit that we all do know we have a light, therefore we are all without excuse, as Romans 1 says, but uh, I agree with that if that's what he means, but if he's saying that all people from their heart long to do good, I would completely disagree. I would suggest the Bible says the exact opposite, that all people from the heart who are not regenerated by the Holy Spirit seek their own. They want to do their own will. They don't from the heart want to do God's will. They want what they want. So then the Pope adds in uh, this sort of made up comment that another Catholic might say to him in response to these comments. And it says, but father, he calls himself father, but father, this is not Catholic. He cannot do good referring to somebody who doesn't believe in God. And Pope Francis responds to that with saying, yes, he can. So I, again, am infused by this intimation of the Pope because is he saying that all can do good irrespective of faith, that you can do good as an atheist uh, regardless of whether you believe in God or not? Uh, maybe from an earthly perspective, we could agree with that. It is always good to feed the homeless and it's always good to uh, forgive and to love neighbor the best you can. All people are capable of extending this type of good, whether they believe in God or not. But if Pope Francis is saying that all people are capable of doing good that will impress God, atheists included, I would strongly resist such a notion. Scripture points out that our good efforts are nothing but filthy rags to God. I mean, if you are thinking that your goodness is going to impress him so much that he's going to say, wow, come on into my kingdom, and you don't believe in his son, you are foolhardy. And that kind of sounds like what he's saying. So if he says the, the, the good that the atheists do is viable, uh, I disagree when it comes to how God sees it. The Pope continues on. He says, the Lord has redeemed all of us, all of us with the blood of Jesus Christ, all of us, not just Catholics, everyone. And then he inserts this kind of question that another Catholic might say, and they say, and the Catholic says, Father, the atheists? And the Pope replies, even the atheists, everyone. Now, whether you know this or not, that's biblically sound. The Greek word for the English word redeemed, Christ has redeemed all of us, is exagorazo, sorry, and it means to buy up or pay the ransom. Did Jesus pay the ransom for all of us, believer and unbeliever alike? Absolutely. So he makes that point, and I would agree with that. The Bible says Jesus paid the price for sin of the whole world, believer or not. And so in that sense, the Pope is dead on. But then he adds a rather troubling statement, and he says, to the unbeliever, to the atheist, we must meet one another doing good. Now that line freaks me out. I don't know what he means. We, atheist, Catholic, believer, whatever, we must meet one another doing good. Uh, atheist good from an eternal perspective is nothing. It's filthy rags. So I have no idea how to take Pope Francis' imperative here that we must all meet one another doing good. It sounds very uh, ecumenically humanist in its tone. And that is what this Pope is being accused of, of being a very liberal, liberal uh, theologian. Then in another strange second fictional rebuttal, Pope Francis in his speaking, in his article, he, or whatever he says, he says, but I don't believe, Father, I am an atheist. So he has someone say to him as the Pope, I don't believe, Father, I am an atheist. And the Pope says something completely insane in response to this comment that he's had someone ask him. I mean, amazingly insane. He replies to the atheist with this, but do good. We will meet one another there. So he has this kind of fictional dialogue going on and he has the person say, but I don't believe. 
I am an atheist. And the Pope's response to the atheist is, but do good. And we will meet one another there. That's what the implication is. So the HuffPo headline is wrong because it, the Pope plainly pointed out that all are redeemed. The headline says, Pope says, atheists are redeemed if they do, do good. That is not what the article says. But however, the Pope does seem to suggest very plainly that if atheists do good, we will all meet each other there. And that is absolutely uh, unbiblical. Absolutely unbiblical. People will go to heaven who have had faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. People will go to hell who do not receive him by faith. Period. That's it. And so the, the Pope is extremely scary in that last line that I just read to you. From the overall tenor of this teaching, I would strongly consider Pope Francis very liberal in his understanding of salvation relative to uh, universal redemption. Okay, since we started our focus on American evangelical Christianity, we've had a number of emails from viewers who believe that I've made a very big mistake in lumping or labeling all these different factions we've been speaking of as evangelical Christianity. Uh, to them, partly because the term ev evangeline is in the scripture, to them, um, they believe that most e American evangelical churches are good, and they suggest that I don't refer to all this other stuff as evangelical Christianity. I get what they mean when they say this, especially since there are many good Christian churches, Christian pastors out there uh, who would deem themselves evangelical Christian Christians without a second thought. But the trouble is the modern living definition of evangelical, uh, what that is to the watching, unbelieving world, okay? <clears throat> Living definitions are really the best way to determine how to define a word, not the Webster's definition. The Webster's definition is almost irrelevant if it, it, it does not contain what the living current definition of the word is. So let me give you an example. The word gay in no way came about because people of the same sex were attracted to each other. Uh, it came about and it meant from the Webster's aside at one time being happy and full of joy and fun-filled. That is the real definition of gay. You look up Webster's back in the day when the word came out and all the way through, gay meant happy, joy-filled, fun-filled. But the best definition today for gay is not that. The best definition is the modern application of the word gay, which means homosexual. So ask yourself or selves, what do most people generally think of what concepts comes to their head when they hear the term evangelical Christianity, evangelical Christians, the evangelical Christian party, the evangelicals. What do people typically believe, especially those who are not of our faith? What imagery comes to their mind? A couple of thoughts. First of all, the term is redundantly ridiculous. We are all we are not evangelical Christians. We are not black Christians. We are not white Christians. We're not female Christians or male Christians. We are Christians. We are not evangelical Christians. Christianity automatically brings in the term that we would be evangelical in our nature. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to be evangelizers. So to say evangelical Christianity is a ridiculous redundancy. So why do we use it? Uh, because those people who use it have set themselves apart as something a little bit different, a little bit maybe better, a little bit more active in certain areas than just Christians, you know. So uh, an evangelical Christian in this day and age includes the fact that they are doing something more than just the mopey old Christian back in the uh, 13th century who believed in Jesus, lived a life of trying to do good to his neighbor and died. No, evangelical Christianity means something different today. Listen carefully now. If modern evangelical Christianity was a term associated with humble quiet, kind, forgiving, loving, neighbor-serving, um, Christ-like people, 
with those attributes, I would never use the, uh, the uh, I would never focus on the term as an attack. I would be proud to be called an evangelical Christian. But generally speaking, is this what most non-believers think uh, when they hear that term? Or do they think of a group that is politically minded, heavy, heavy politically minded and politically driven, driven, which Jesus was not, okay? Uh, Uber conservative or Uber Republican usually comes along with that, often tied to terms like Tea Party. Jesus was not any of those, I hate to tell you. Uh, Condemnatory, gay-hating or gay-fighting or abortion-picketing, fighting against things that they disdain, zealotry in some cases, is associated with the term evangelical Christianity, which Jesus was not in any of those, in any of the, any of those things. So I want to belong to a group of people who really, truly want to follow the New Testament model and the king of that New Testament model, Jesus Christ. Nothing less, not one whit less, not one whit more. I don't need to be something that American evangelical Christianity tells me I need to be when I read the Bible and I don't see those appendages attached at all, okay? So that's why the association remains unless I'm convinced otherwise. So far, your emails haven't convinced me. So finally, before we go to our prayer, another message uh, for tonight. When we were taken off the air here in Utah, I had the opportunity to see various methods employed I went to some live debates I've watched on television where people have tried to reach the LDS with the truth of their religion while at the same time attempting to use their methods of bringing them to the Lord. And since we're an online show now, uh, which is archived, I'm going to take some liberties to say some things I would not say when we were on live television, uh, especially here in Utah. Why is that? because I want to support anyone who believes they are truly called to reach the LDS or other non-Christian groups who claim they are Christian. Uh, The question, however, that I think ought to be asked by anyone attempting to reach the Mormons, anybody who believes they are called to reach the Latter-day Saints, they ought to ask themselves, what is the biblical model God typically uses in getting people to do his will, okay? And if we look at the word, God typically prepares people through years of experience and before he ever brings them into working with a thing he wants them to do. For example, in Moses' case, he was called essentially from birth, went out on the river, was put into the reed, and 40 years with the Egyptians, 40 years in the wilderness wandering around, and finally at 80 years of age spent 40 years then leading the children of Israel out. That was his ministry. So he had 80 full years of preparation uh, doing things before God actually assigned him. You can look at Paul, same type of thing. King David was a sheep, uh, sheep herding boy who learned courage and valor as a sheep herder before he ever went under King Saul. Then under King Saul, he learned how to be uh, uh, full of allegiance and patience and trust in the Lord. And then finally, he used all those skills that he had acquired during that time to become the king of Israel and lead them as a nation. Look at Joseph sold in Egypt, what he went through. Look at uh, John the Baptist, how long his life was in the wilderness. And then he gave his, did his ministry, lost his head. Look at Jesus, 30 years as a carpenter, 30 years of preparation, essentially, of God in the flesh before he uh, did three years of uh, ministry uh, for the world. So I do appreciate the efforts of people who have never been LDS in trying to bring souls out of Mormonism and into a saving relationship with Jesus, but maybe wisdom is needed for some of them, not all of them, but some of them, Maybe they ought to look at how God has equipped them instead of thinking that, you know, everybody's in the game, so let's all just jump on the bandwagon. I'm not saying this to limit competition. There's no competition. I, you know, if you're effective in reaching the Latter-day Saints, praise God. But I say it out of concern for the Mormons. That's who I'm called to. That's who others have been called to. And when some people who have never been LDS think they have the ability to go in and reach them, they're wrong. And you can see it, having been LDS, how they are just blowing it. It's a matter of how God typically prepares people. It's a matter of damage control and an attempt to, uh, to protect the LDS from, from, from things that aren't working. 
And really, it's comparing true effectiveness with theoretical effectiveness. Uh, of late, I've seen some really horrible things in the Mormon Christian arena of debate and uh, ineffective methods being employed by individuals who have never been LDS that have convinced themselves that they are called to uh, go out and do this job. Uh, from what I've seen, they typically get their lunch hand-fed to them, and the sad thing is they don't even know it. it they're, they're, they're getting their head handed to them while they sit there and are, become the self-appointed apologist, and they don't see it. Wouldn't it be better for not former LDS pastors and people who feel called to apologetics or ministry to the Mormons to sharpen the skills they receive from years of experience that God has given them in other areas? Uh, this is the reason Doris Hansen's ministry is effective in speaking to the FLDS and to the LDS. She was one of them. This is the reason why uh, Earl Erskine, Bishop Earl, in his interview uh, program, he has, he's a Christian now, but he's still a Mormon bishop. And when he talks and he interacts, he's still the Mormon bishop. And he knows what they're saying, and he knows what they've been through, and he relates. And so people who are LDS understand what he's doing. Uh, and, and this is why the mother of all uh, uh, apologistia, Sandra Tanner, is so effective. I mean, she was LDS, she knows what it's all about, and she knows when stuff is coming down the road, when manipulation is going on, etc. This is why individuals who have left Mormonism and have become Christians are so much more effective in understanding what is going on with it. So think about this in this way, and we'll wrap this up. In the very same way, when the word uh, became flesh, we have the same reason. I mean, Jesus became flesh. God became flesh for a reason, to be able to relate, mediate, understand our trials. And so that model there is even with our Savior, came to earth and he experienced earth life before he saved earth, earth, earthlings. And we have the same premise with people who were Muslim and are now Christians ought to be the ones reaching to the Muslims. And I'm not trying to put God in a box. It's always open, but it's just the thought. There are always exceptions. There are very good apologists who have never been LDS. But I'm saying today, it's, it's like everybody has become, you know, a, 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 an expert in reaching the Mormons. And I think a lot of damage is being done. All right, with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we need you tonight. Got a lot of information and uh, we are archiving this, Lord, so that people can come back and look, to, look these topics up and discuss them. We pray your spirit with those who are helping us, volunteers and uh, the ministry in general and anybody who is searching for you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. Tonight's gonna be a good one, I think. We blazed a trail last week talking about the major developments in Christianity since Constantine made it a state religion. Uh, I realize that we are barely skimming the surface of church history. It's vast, complex history. We're trying to hit on the major advances and declines that have helped create, in many ways, but not all, the church today in America, the evangelical church. Please take note that we readily admit that the Lord's hand has been upon his church since the beginning. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that church exists within the heart of true believers. That is where the church is. And on a, on a, upon a foundation of apostles and prophets, these believers make up the church wherein the Holy Spirit dwells. That's the New Testament picture of the church. However, in the brick and mortar church where wheat and tares will exist, there is also models presented. So while the aberrational religious dalliances which we've described are the rule in this fallen world, that's right, all these weird religious things are the rule in church history, there are exceptions and they are the few be there that find it. That is a theme I didn't make up, Jesus did. He said it. He said there are few be there that find it. So we left off last week with the American church becoming institutionalized up through the 1950s which is when the first mega churches started appearing. Again, what did the basic snapshot of the church look like in the 1950s? Well, of course, there were the Catholics. There were Protestant denominations. 
There were 19th century cults that had proliferated since that time, like the LDS, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, Seventh-day Adventists at that time. But interestingly enough, they all pretty much looked the same. They, they generally, they even operated off kind of a similar pattern and organizational means. The church people of the 1950s were essentially clean-looking, clean-living people that promoted American ideology of working hard, paying taxes, contributing to the church, backyard barbecues on Saturday, whether you were Mormon or, or Presbyterian, you went to church on Sunday and you tried to be a respectable neighbor. I mean, that was just kind of how the denominations all looked together. I would suggest that prior to the mid-1960s, the world hadn't seen a Jesus freak since Billy Sunday at the turn of the century, who was up ranting and raving and, and the revivals that came with it. At the same time, however, the 1950s also saw, as we've mentioned, charismatic Pentecostal snake handler types working their way out of the bayou and coming into the forefront, especially through radio and then television. And they brought this zealous appeal of speaking in tongues and supernatural healings and the birth of Faith Healing's ugly twin sister, prosperity theology. So all of that started happening toward the end of the 1950s. Enter the mid-1960s with the assassination of JFK and his younger brother Bobby, the Vietnam War, and Timothy Leary telling people to turn on, tune in, and drop out. The young and the young at heart who as kids went to Sunday school in their little white shirts and in their little calico dresses, they looked around, perhaps more importantly, they looked inside their heart and they didn't find God. All they found was the religious institutions that had been prescribed to them by their parents. And in that religious institution, Jesus was always portrayed as almost an American, always conservative, always concerned with authority, always concerned with order. In a day of cultural upheaval and uncertainty, this American Jesus would no longer do. And so uh, what happened was, amidst all of it all, uh, there was an upheaval. A, and um, a remnant of the Lord's true said, you know, something needs to be done. And so as the young masses rebelled and sought spiritual enlightenment in alternative sources like hallucinogenics and free open sex with each other, the age of Aquarius and experimentation and all these things, uh, some of the remnant who knew God longed to reach these lost and the Holy Spirit began to do a work. Inner men like Dwayne Pedersen, Jack Sparks, who led the Christian World Liberation Front, Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee of Calvary Chapel, Steve Freeman and the Kingdom Come Christian Coffee Houses, and many, many more who came along during these radical reformation or uh, revolutionary years of the 1960s Christianity. Generally speaking, these men and women also frustrated with the rigid business models of American church in the 50s allowed the cultural way uh, that was going on in America to kind of flow into the way they did church. And they opened their doors to the 1960s and 70s counterculture and chose to say, hey, we want to encourage a more liberated and free relationship with Jesus. And the relationship part of Christianity really began to take form here in the United States with a major fo focus on being born again and really experiencing Jesus and coming to church as you are, barefoot, bearded, long-haired, we want you to come in. This introduced us to a really big thing. Oddly and interestingly enough, a few of the mainstays of modern American Christianity at that time are still with us today. They're vestiges of that time gone past. Many of the current approaches to worship music are a direct product of Maranatha music started by Chuck Smith and other music companies that came out. The hippies were totally into playing guitars and playing music. And so what they said was, hey, write your own songs about Jesus. We'll put them you in front of the congregation and you can share them. So they did. And Maranatha music was born. And today we have Christian music being played on K-Love, a direct, direct relation to that group. Also coffee worship. 
quite frankly, it's, it's kind of similar to the music worship. It's all there to, you know, intensify and excite that these people were used to taking substances. They were used to this life. And so coffee became the thing that you would do. And coffee remains like this thing every Christian does. Uh, I tried it. I tried and tried. I couldn't do it. Okay. And, uh, and then finally, the, there was something called the come and worship Jesus and then get out of Dodge model. And uh, the sway of the Jesus Freak movement was a great success. It feverishly lasted about a decade at the most uh, before it started to morph. And uh, there are many people who were converted to the Lord and the Holy Spirit at that time and remain very good Christians to this day. But more to the point and purposes of our program tonight, the elements this period introduced to American Christianity which left the denominationalists still sitting and singing hymns and in their stuffed shoot, uh, shirts and authority down uh, hierarchy, have taken on a life of their own today. And uh, as they always tend to do when men get involved, it's nothing new. You remember that Moses, when he was with the children of Israel and these stinging beasts came down and they would sting the children of Israel and kill them. God told Moses, hey, listen, I want you to make a brass serpent. And, and hold that up, and, if, and as the children of Israel just look, it's a picture of Christ, just look to that brass serpent, they will be healed. So that brass serpent served as a great model to bring people to healing, to salvation, so to speak. Uh, what happened to that icon God used to heal so many in Moses' day? Well, 700 years later, a prophet named Hezekiah comes along, and the nation of Israel was worshiping idols all over the place, and Hezekiah found one of those idols, and it was the brass serpent that Moses had made. And he took that, what we would think was a sacred icon, and he smashed it to pieces. And he said, Nehushtan, which means it's just a piece of brass, you see. The point is, human beings, especially in things relative to God, we grip onto stuff and it, we easily are moved off course relative to worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And before we know it, we find ourselves immersed in cultures that we say are Christianity, but are not. Aside from the influence of music and coffee consumption, the Jesus movement gave American Christianity today, I would suggest, the most destructive brass serpent this period of Christian revival uh, has ever seen. And it's the stop and go church. It's the, well, stop and go, we think of a little mini mart. It's more like the, I don't know, maybe the Disneyland church. It's where you go in, you entertain yourself, and you leave. And you have no connection to that place until the next week when you come and you get entertained again. Stop in, grab a cup of coffee, stand and sing under blazing lights and, and or fog machines, hear an entertaining and relevant message by cool looking dudes who really tell you something relevant and then get the heck out of Dodge, go. That's what so much of Christianity, again, not all, has become. See, in reaction against the stiff corporate culture denominationalism, the Jesus movement rebelled against it, but that has become a way that is not biblical. It is not the biblical model. And the once discipleshipping has been lost from the church. And the door opened for churches to become seeker-friendly. That term is so contrary to the biblical model of church you'll vomit if you really understand it. Before I tell you which church today I firmly believe best represents the biblical model of doing church, I wanna first explain how many ch uh, churches today approach doing church and then lay out what the Bible says on the subject. I'll be quick, we, I, we, we have one caller, Wilma from Layton, but I gotta get this in the archives. Generally speaking, there's a popular cycle for building churches today. First, the pastor and the leadership, they have to decide we're not gonna pay attention to the Bible. We're not gonna look at the model that was presented there. That bigger is better, they think, and they step on that slippery slope. That leads to the pastor having his dream designed and architected out, and a bigger is better building is then presented. That leads to the need to burden believers with the financial burden to pay for this building that he's dreamed about to hold more masses because he has avoided the biblical model. And this leads to constant fundraising 
uh, which may or may not include words like tithing and or building fund and or sacrifice financially, uh, which are not concepts for the biblical model. And then once the building's finally been erected, there will always be a need to keep the seats full because you gotta pay the bills of this giant monstrosity. At this point, uh, a number of reasons the church may exist in the first place get lost. Bigger shows are needed, why? Because masses of people relate to things very differently than smaller groups. Smaller groups can be controlled and managed and discipled and loved and known and helped, but masses cannot. So you have to reach the masses, not through interpersonal relationships, but you reach the masses through shows. And so the, the pastors say, we've gotta keep them coming. Last week, we had five lights and one fog machine. This lights, let's have Jesus come down in a robe from the sky. People will applaud and they'll invite their friends next week. So the bills keep getting paid, but guess, guess what? No one's getting fed. No one understands the scripture. No one hears it or that it's referred to, but anecdotal stories are then told and the pastor is Mr. Hipster and the entertainment continues to go and these draw everybody in because it is so engaging. I'm not saying, again, that this is always the case. There are some large churches who have been able to overcome this, but that's the exception. So what is the biblical model uh, and what church represents the very best picture of it? <sighs> to understand the biblical model, let me just put it to you this way. The first part is the vertical cross. That's the first part. That is where God came to man. This is where man looks to God and says, I'm a sinner, save me. And that post in the earth is the first point you begin with, with the biblical model of church, faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot put the horizontal beam up without the vertical in place first. So the vertical has to be there. From that, we enter and we put in the uh, horizontal beam. That is reaching out to one another. That is discipleship. The Jesus movement, the revivals are hugely good at preaching Jesus and talking only about the vertical model. They talk Jesus, you need to be saved, you need to repent, come to Jesus. It's Jesus, 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 and that is very much the first thing. I've said that, but it's not the only thing. There is something that reaches out to the world too in Christianity. It reaches out to fellow brothers. It reaches out to dying to self. It wasn't just on that post, it was on the cross. And the cross is very significant throughout scripture. So I have to emphasize that when it comes to this part of Christianity, this part has to be embraced first. There is no such thing as a seeker-friendly church. The church in the New Testament was never, ever for anybody to belong to who did not believe. You believe and you become part of the church and you become a member of the church and you are part of the body of Christ. But if you are coming and you're not believing, it's not the church's job to try to convince you to believe. Of course, visitors are welcome, but it's like this. To think that the church is the place to help bring people to get them to believe is like saying the Los Angeles Dodgers job is to get little children to understand the fundamentals of baseball. So they should use their stadium, they should use all their uh, uh, facilities, they should use their time and salaries to bring in kids who want to learn about baseball who don't know anything about it. That's not what the Dodgers are for. The Dodgers are on a team. The Dodgers have committed themselves. They are at the top of the thing. That's what the picture is for those who believe. They've been saved and they are in the church and the church is there to do this. Disciple them. It is there to help them grow as believers in love. The, the, the New Testament never would include non-believers in this model of discipleship, never. But when this became the only focus, it became, look at everybody come and we will become the ones who bring you to Christ. Now, certainly people come to Christ by visiting churches, and, but the church should never cater what it does to the fact that people who don't believe yet are there. Those people need to hear, if they're gonna be there, they can hear what goes on. You don't care. So the seeker-friendly thing is a complete lie. 
So with the vertical in place, meaning the person has been saved by grace through faith, the horizontal bar of the cross can be set. And this is the earthly gathering place where like-minded believers, they love each other. And after they are loving each other, then they go out and they serve the world too. And they do missional efforts to bring in people to believe who they've helped convert through the Holy Spirit. But that is when that is set in place. Remember Jesus' last words to his disciples in Matthew 28. Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. When Jesus said, go ye therefore and teach all nations, the Greek word is, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. That means bring them into this church. Go make disciples and disciple them into the things that I have taught them. Um, Stay with me. The means which God disciples his children is by and through his church because in his church, all the elements, principles, models, and methods ought to be in place for men and women to come, who have come to faith to learn to produce fruits of love. That is what it is about. Listen carefully. Such discipleship doesn't happen in monastic living. It doesn't happen going up on the hill and just praying up there all alone. And it doesn't happen in stop and go churches. You have to become part of the body, which is why that uh, analogy is used. It happens among believers who are members of churches and are therefore known to the other believers among them. When you lived at Ephesus and you came to know Christ, you belonged to the church at Ephesus. And the other believers saw you do something that said they belong to us. We are responsible for them and they are responsible for us. What did they do? They got baptized. They were baptized into the church at Corinth, at Ephesus. These churches were known by their names. If somebody moved from Ephesus to Rome, Paul wrote letters and said, this sister Phoebe, I highly recommend. She is of good faith. This guy, Hermanius, do not trust him. He's no good. So we have an organization of order that existed in the early church that has been thrown away because men and their ideas say we know better. So where the Jesus freaks, as I said, do well with the vertical church, the denominations do a phenomenal job with, the, with this. They get in there and they say, we are going to make you members of our church. We are going to help you be discipled through the means which we, we think is best. Here's the point. I've had to repent. See, I was LDS and I was part of that for so long. And that's the ultimate denomination in terms of order and discipling of the false gospel that when I came to Calvary Chapel and I learned the freedom, the the Jesus freak freedom in Christ, I became so anti-denominational, I couldn't see straight. So when we started our our ministry here in Utah, we spent seven years going around and doing what we called open water baptisms. And we baptized people who had the same heart as me. I hate religion, but I love Jesus. And so we baptized them and I just let them go off into the wolves. I just said, okay, you're a believer, you dude, that's cool. The Lord will keep you and go ahead, be good, go on. And I was wrong, I repent, I'm sorry. It was absolutely incorrect. I unwittingly did them a disservice for which I am sorry. I allowed them to believe stop and go church is the biblical model, that's how I was trained. Look at what Jesus said in what we call the Great Commission. Go ye therefore, make disciples, baptizing. Now, Listen, hang with me, we're almost done. If and since we know from scripture that salvation comes by grace through faith alone, not through works, lest any man should boast, what purpose does water baptism serve at all? Uh, God, knowing and looking at the heart, we know he does that. He does not care if you have gotten wet, except for the idea that you've been obedient to him saying you should do this. But what does it serve for those who have already been saved by faith? To what purpose it serves to identify those who are saved to each other? It serves just as circumcision served to help the Jews identify each other, but God did not need to look at the penis of a Jew to know he was a Jew. 
He looked at them from the heart, but we have baptism as the identifier. In the early church, you came to know Christ, you came out of Judaism, you were baptized unto his death, you were raised to new life, and in that new life, you then had a responsibility to your brothers and sisters, your new family, you were spiritually, physically born in water here, new family to become a part of. And that new family was there to help you when you mourn, when you suffer. How could the early church pick leaders if they didn't know who the leaders were, if they didn't have an intimate relationship with each other, okay? So this served a purpose. Other members of the body, other members of the church. Baptism, our water baptism, made us brothers and sisters with other believers. Baptism is a public profession and is a church event where other members witness us becoming their sibling in Christ and then are in a position to say, I have a reason to pray and mourn and suffer for them. This is the New Testament model. The churches are all named by their location. That's how it worked. Now, this leads me to the topic of church size quickly. How can members of the body know the problem of members if the body is of an inordinate size? It's impossible. How does the Bible liken the church to, what does it liken it to? A flock. You will never see, according to the Bible and Jesus, a real shepherd have a flock where he doesn't know the name of every sheep and he can't identify them. You will not see a sh one single shepherd with a thousand or 10,000 sheep out there because it doesn't work that way in shepherding. You have to know your sheep and you have to disciple them and train them and raise them up. Get too big and this is impossible. How can a shepherd protect the flock if it is so big they can't reach out, know them and protect them? Doesn't know their names. I know the modern ab answer of Christians today will say sub-shepherds, uh, uh, associate pastors. I'll tell you right now, no one wants to go to the associate pastor when they have a real problem. They wanna go to the head cheese. And Jesus talked about associate pastors. Remember, he said, listen, when the thieves come, the hireling shepherd, the associate pastors, they flee. They don't have a vested interest in the flock. The shepherd, the, the, the pastor, has the interest in the flock. That is why the, the numbers have to be kept small within the congregation. How can you elect a board of elders or deacons if you don't know them? How does the church discipline work? How, how do you discipline people who are sitting at the back of a 3,000 member church? And you're up there and you're their shepherd and you're doing church in this phony bullshit way and you think that is what the biblical model is. It's a lie. If a sheep is lost, what if someone gets addicted to drugs in your 3,000 member church? No one knows them. They come and go. They have no discipleship at all. Those who push house, church, house, church, house, church, that is not a viable reason because in house churches, you don't have somebody who knows the word to be able to feed the flock. So the house church, really house churches, is, I won't even go into that another time. Look at, I just get to it right now. The biblical model, the pastor is responsible for the sheep of his flock. He knows their names because the flock is of limited size. And because of this, the pastor is able to correctly teach, lead, and disciple them. He is able to elect them to places of leadership from knowing them. And he feels or senses their pain, just like our head feels pain when our ankle is broken. He can seek them out when they are lost. And once his flock gets to a certain size, just like they did at the other churches in the early church, another will be raised up from that flock to go and lead another flock that is broken out of this one. And they spread that way. Looking at all of these details, plus many, many more, which we're gonna cover in the week to come, what church today best represents the New Testament model for doing church the way God would have us do church? The Mormons, without a doubt, unquestionably. They do it perfectly. Challenge anybody to argue with it, call us. 801-590-8413. While we're clearing your calls, take a minute, consider this message. We'll come back and take them.
Now, uh, before we go to uh, Wilma and Leighton, Gary and Casper, Wyoming, and Casey in Provo, Utah, you ought to know by now that I would never, ever suggest that all the errant things of Mormonism are correct. Not at all. But just because somebody, uh, you know, is, uh, does a lot of things wrong doesn't mean they can't get some things right. And we would be foolish not to look at that model and maybe even start to embrace some of the things. We'll talk about it next week. All right, let's go to Wilma in Leighton, Utah. Wilma, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi. You're on the air, Wilma. Uh, yes, I, it seems to me like a long time ago when I was in the ladies' Bible study. Yeah. The teacher told us then that there was actually no true church on earth and that the Lord would create his church when he comes? Is there a biblical scripture like that? No. Uh, I, I mean, mean he's, he's going to gather, gather his bride. There is a true church, but it's made of believers. I, maybe he, that, that, that pastor or teacher was saying that there's no brick-and-mortar true church on earth. That would be impossible since it's full of wheat and tares, according to Jesus, good fish and bad fish. So in terms of a true church... Uh, it's made of true believers, and that's what the Bible tends to say. Oh, okay. It seems to me like I, she said that there would be the only true church would be when Christ comes, and he would bring his, you know, the only true church. Yeah, well, maybe what, what she, she was thinking of is that is when he will separate the wheat from the chaff and the good fish from the bad fish and those the goats from the sheep, and the sheep, that will become the true church in the sense of membership, but there is no true church in the sense of campus is the only true church or Mormonism or this Baptist church. That's, that's not true because there, we all have failures and, and faults. Okay. Thanks for calling, Wilma. We're going to Gary in Casper, Wyoming. Gary, you're on Heart of the Matter. Gary, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Gary. You're on the air, my friend. Oh. Hey, Gary, you're on the air. Gary? Can you hear me? I can, go ahead. Hey, I've got a question for you. I'm not LDS, but I have an opportunity here, I guess, this weekend to go see one of the apostles. Russell, I believe his name is. Yeah. And I remember I've watched your past episodes and stuff, and you mentioned that it's true apostle is one that has actually seen Jesus physically? Yeah, the, at, at least, least when we look at the biblical model, those apostles, they were taught by him, they saw him physically, they touched him, handled him, as John says in 1 John, they watched him die, they watched him ascend into heaven and sit on the right hand of majesty, and they were his witnesses who then gave their lives for that witness. They were never ashamed to say that they saw him resurrected. So yes, Okay. Yeah, because I just wanted to get your thoughts on it. I thought about maybe, you know, asking him that question if he's actually seen, you know, physically seen Jesus. And you know, I have a know. friend, uh, his name's Danny, and when he was on his mission, uh, they, he was served a mission in Salt Lake and, or in Utah, and I guess they came to an apostle's house, and one of them had the uh, audacity to ask one of the apostles if they had ever seen Christ, and the guy went ballistic and said, you're not worthy to understand that. You know, they're so full of crud, their eyes are brown. I mean, they, they, they make it up and they pretend. They have not seen the Lord Jesus Christ because anybody who has, who is his witness, does not hold that back. They share it constantly and openly. These guys don't do that. Right, absolutely, I agree. I just, just wanted to curious thought. what I'll be looking at. You know, if I do ask that question, if I'll be ran out of the building or... Yeah, hey, you might be. Gary, uh, go to hotm.tv, look up 2010 archives of the Mormonism shows. We have a show called Apostles. That might give you some more information to use if you get a chance to meet this guy. Okay. All right, my friend, thanks for calling. Thanks for we are going to Casey in Provo, Utah. Casey, you're on the air. Yeah. We have a delay. I... Casey? Okay, I'm here. I got the TV off. Yeah, yeah you, you got, got, you're, you're on, on the air, air Casey. Casey. Okay. 
Listen, I've been listening to your show for a long time, several years now, and I switched over to the Internet when you left, uh, hoping that things would work out. i got to say, your big credential on your previous show was, I've been a Mormon, so I know how it is. But I don't see that you have the same credential here. I mean, how, how long do you think you needed to be involved in uh, mainstream Christianity or regular Christianity or whatever you want to call it before you decided to launch out on your own on this? Yeah, it's, it's a really good point. Uh, I have I have from uh, 2001 till uh, 2013, so I have 12 years of being uh, evangelical, uh, part of the evangelical church. However, I have very very limited exposure to uh, firsthand experience in Christian churches. However, what I do have is, and I'm not this is not boasting or anything. I have 27 years. The past 17 of being in the Word of God daily, uh, maybe two hours a day, at least an hour every day, and I know what it says. And so when I hear and see men do things that are not biblical, I think that the Word of God is what gives me my justification to call them out on it. Well, I'm not arguing with that. and There's certainly some people that are called that way. I have no, no yeah. problem with that specifically. But I got to say, you know, I've been watching and I'm not real convinced here. I think there's something off. Well, I'm I'm off. off. You know, I was off when I was LDS. I'm off now. I'm bringing concepts that I think need to be addressed. I'm not saying follow me in my ways. I'm not saying I'm completely right. But I am saying there's something wrong in the woodpile. There's something dead underneath that woodpile. I can smell it. I see it. I'm not saying that... uh, I know every time. I know when pastors build churches where they don't know their congregates, there's something wrong. I know when pastors build churches that cost millions of dollars, there's something wrong. I know when they use the word tithing, there's something wrong. I know if they talk about uh, worthiness or about giving and healings uh, that are miraculous and can be done, uh, I think there's something wrong. So don't, don't believe me. I don't expect that, Casey. But, you know, open up your mind, listen to what I have to say, and then open up your book, that black book. See what it says. Test That's all things. things. And, and I, see you know, if, if, you're, if, if your pastor, wherever you go, is in line. He or is, probably is. There are many good churches, but there are so many that aren't. And remember, my purpose in doing this, Casey, is to help those LDS who are leaving Mormonism not walk into one of these den of thieves better on the air, uh, the regular uh, TV station? What, uh, one, one more, more time? time? Don't you think you could do that on, better on the regular TV station? You know, well, I, I do, do, but I got I kicked off of that regular TV station for saying I was going to do this. The, the pastors in the community, many of them rallied together, contacted the station, and they got me kicked off because I said I'm going to examine evangelical Christianity and what I see. So I would love to be on TV and uh, in Utah and doing that, but I don't have that option right now. Okay, well, you know, I don't think it should be all that surprising that they did that. I mean... I do. What are they afraid of? I mean, I can do up to Mormonism for seven years without anybody doing anything. Not a hair of my head was harmed. I did one week of it here in this state, and I had the churches who were primarily guilty of the stuff I'm talking about band together and get me off. Let me tell you something, Casey. The state's number one friend of Mormonism was the one who got me off the TV, uh, uh, and he used this as his premise. That's how it works. I don't doubt you at all, and I'll keep watching you. Good. I have no problem with that. Good. I'm kind of disappointed that we didn't get to hear the thing that you said you were going to talk about last week, this week, I think, um, which I think was something about how you can still be a, or you don't have to be a creationist to be. Oh, no, I'm going to get to that, Casey, but it's going to be a while. But I absolutely will get to that. That's another thing I think smells in the evangelical woodpile. You know what? And I agree with you. Um, and I would love to see, you know, some, some different points of view. But I'm just, I'm, I'm a little concerned here. So anyway, I hate that I'll word. Keep watching you. We'll give it a shot. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Bye. I hate that word, a little concerned. What are you concerned of? God's on the throne. We all try our best. I'm a little, I just, I'm sorry, Casey. You bug, you bug me. All right. Uh, <laughs> it's probably one of our big contributors of the last remaining few. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we love you guys. We seek truth. 
I'm not saying I have a corner on it, but I say I'm going to push it to the end of my last breath to find it wherever it can be found. And if something's wrong, I'm going to say it. I don't care. We'll go out that way. We love you. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.